Okay, let's begin. Um, as you know, this is a question-and-answer session, so it really depends on you. What sort of things you'd like to raise? Points for clarification, general questions about Buddhism, whatever's been going on in the practice, what's been going on in the, in the talks. You know, it's up to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this was a question about the, the difficult person. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been enjoying this practice, but I sort of feel that I'm, I'm almost, maybe because I'm willing the person to change. Mm-hmm. So if, if the difficult person wasn't quite so, well, had a, had a life that was easier and kinder, with a bit more peace and ease, um, then my life would be easier. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, this was a question, I don't suppose everybody heard that. This was a question about the difficult person in the practice that we're doing at the moment. And uh, the comment that was being made is there's a tendency to want the difficult person to change. Um, Because (laughs) if the difficult person changed, your life would be a lot easier. (laughs) Well, actually, um, the the sad part of the story is this is not about willing the difficult person to change. Um, as I'm probably sure you realise, this is not about changing the other. The only, the only person, as I've said to so many groups over this last week, and actually said, in, of course, in the course of some of the talks, the only person you can change is you. So what you're actually doing is changing your mind in relationship to the difficult person, not trying to change the difficult person. And actually, this is interesting, because if you change your attitudes and mind and heart and body towards that person, perhaps, I wouldn't say they'll change, but perhaps there might be different responses. Yeah? Perhaps if, you know, and I'm just thinking generally here, perhaps if our body language isn't kind of like this and wanting to get away, um, perhaps there's a, there's a sort of a tendency more to listen to what they're saying rather than just kind of turning your head away or whatever it might be, or just running away. Um, perhaps the relationship would change in itself. So although we can't change that other person, perhaps you know, in changing ourselves, there might be some changes in the relation itself. But I wouldn't actually put a promissory note on it. Yeah. The thing is that the only person we can change is ourselves. We're changing our own minds. The whole of the meta practice is not about changing others. It's about changing our, ourselves in relationship to all of these you know, people. The difficult person is just the extreme end of it. That is all. I just want to say something about, and I heard everybody sort of snigger a little bit when I said the moderately difficult this evening, as opposed to the really, really difficult. There's a tendency, and I was trying to indicate this this afternoon when I introduced the practice, there's a tendency to be almost masochistic. Go right for the person who's the most difficult, obdurate character in the whole of your life. You know, uh, and I'm joking about it, but this seriously might be somebody who's caused you trauma, might have caused you harm in the past. And at this stage of the practice, it's probably all still too raw to engage with that. So you take somebody of moderate difficulty rather than go for the most difficult person you can think of here. Um, and see if you can work with that, because more often than not, there's an awful lot that comes up even in relationship to you know, the, the irritating person, let alone the person who's really gone and done you harm in the past um, in some way or another. So this is why I say you know, go for somebody who's not, not the most difficult person in your life. This is not, not a wise idea. This is not wise at all. Um, it has a sort of slightly masochistic flavour to it at times. So that's the reason why I said that comment this evening. Yeah. It's a, a sort of couple, it's a bit of a confused question about what you said this morning about the craving mm-hmm. and letting the feeling of craving sort of sweep over you. Mm-hmm. So it made me think about having a cup of tea in the morning or a chocolate biscuit. Mm-hmm. And the first question is exactly how do you let it sweep over you? And then can you ever have a cup of tea? <laughs> 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 okay, let's answer that bit of the question first. 
you can still have your cup of tea. <laughs> I wouldn't worry about it. And you can still have your chocolate biscuit. What we're looking, is, looking at is the compulsion to have it. You know, the absolute compulsion. Because often, often these things don't, they're not just cups of tea and they're not just chocolate biscuits. They represent something for us. They represent some kind of comfort, as we all know. You know, hard day work, get home, automatic craving. There you are reaching for the chocolate biscuits or reaching for a mug of coffee or a cup of tea or whatever it might be. And it's all kind of comfort stuff. It's about filling yourself up from the, almost the vacuity of the day in some senses. And so what we're looking at that is that compulsive behavior. And, and it's just interesting as an experiment. Sometimes when you feel that compulsion, if you see it arising in you, and often you can, it's, you know, sometimes you can't, sometimes you just, as I think I said the other night, you just find yourself eating the biscuit rather than watching it arise because it's become so habitual. But in a lot of cases we can see this, this compulsion arising And what I was suggesting was actually watch it arise, watch it peak, really watch it get to its sort of crescendo in a sense where you're going, oh, I've really got to have that chocolate biscuit. (laughs) And then watch it drop away because it will drop away. I can guarantee you that. Actually, I don't hold out many promissory notes in these, but I can guarantee you that if you have a craving or an aversion and if you sit with it, actually it has a very short shelf life. You know, it rises, peaks, and drops away. Now, it might come back again, and you do the same process. Now, now I'm not saying this is a comfortable process. Remember what I was saying this morning, there's going to be some discomfort in this. You know, whenever you're breaking a habit, whenever you're breaking a compulsion, there's going to be a sense of uncomfortableness, of jitteriness, almost like going cold turkey for a little bit whilst you do this. Um, but this is actually one of the four, what's called four great efforts in, in Buddhist practice, which is called restraint. Yeah. First element is restraint. So this is the ability to sit with what is there arising and watch it pass away. Yeah. So it's not so much sweeping over you, it's actually just watching it as a, as a mental process arising and passing away. And this is actually what's happening with all thoughts. This is why we shouldn't take them so seriously. You know, all thought processes are like this. All have this characterization. That, you know, in, in Buddhist psychological texts, they're referred to as being momentary. You know, all thought processes are momentary. They arise. You know, there's what's called a mental factor. It arises with consciousness. It arises together and it drops away together. It will be replaced by something else. might not be the same thing. You might find that that craving that aversion has gone might come back half an hour later but it might not for that half an hour manifest at all in that period of time this is actually about the ways of freeing ourselves from compulsion we start with small things we start with you know, the compulsion of the chocolate biscuit or whatever it might be and actually adding some restraint in to stop ourselves from engaging in it now, this is not about enjoying things or like that. It's, not, it's about freeing ourselves, as i kind of reiterating here again, but it's freeing ourselves from that, that absolute drivenness to get what we want or to move away from what we don't want. Yeah. Now, I would actually suggest to you there's not a lot of freedom in that. You know, we're back to the pinball machine again, being flipped around, you know, with the ball being flipped around the, the, the whole pinball machine. Um, so there's not a lot of freedom in that. And what actually this path is about, it says, you know, the Buddha says, this path gives you the taste of freedom. Yeah. That taste of freedom. It doesn't stop pleasure, but it does stop compulsion. It does stop habit. And remember what I said, habits are, if you like, the grooves around which all of our thinking processes operate, mostly. Yeah. And there's no freedom in habit. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I had some moments today where I felt as if I was more, um, when I was repeating the phrases, like I was kind of beating myself over the head with them rather than mm-hmm. in the mental line of my being. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs>
against myself or something. And mm. They're a little bit or quite disembodied. And so I, I just stop saying the phrases because they just seem to be creating too much mm -hmm. sort of turbulence almost. Right. There's no, there's no going wrong. Let's 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 get that. Let's discount that thing completely. There's no going wrong. You're you're experiencing what you're experiencing. If you're experiencing, Can you the yeah, sure. Um, it was really the question is quite short in many senses. The question is about the use of the phrases. The person who was asking the question was saying at some point instead of dropping these questions, you know, these uh, phrases in like stones into the well of your being, felt like bashing yourself over the head with them. You know, beating beating yourself up with them. Rather, and so there was a lot of intellectual turmoil, feelings of disembodiment, as I'm echoing it. So it, it felt like um, it was being unproductive, I would suggest, in all of that. And really, I'm responding also to the fact, you know, where you know, the subsidiary question was, where was I going wrong? And I actually said, well, you aren't going wrong. There is no right or wrong here. You're experiencing what you're experiencing here. So, what do you do in instances like this? Well, it might mean that you've kind of come into a slightly skewed relationship, for whatever reason. There'll be reasons and causes for that with the phrases. So, what do you do? Well, you go back to something much simpler. You go back to sitting with the breath. And when you feel that the mind has some stability again, some calmness, perhaps, some gatheredness and concentration then try dropping them in again. And if it's still the same, go back to the breath. See if there's stability, come back to them and see again. So it's a process of going backwards and forwards between them. You know, it's a not, it, you know, if you're feeling that you're beating yourself up with them, you're not having a relationship with them, there's something going wrong here, well, there might be. But the way of actually starting to deal with that is actually to come back to the simple and I would say this for anybody, if you're suffering you know, kind of turmoil, turbulence, if you're thinking too much, you know, often we can get into a relationship um, of thinking about these phrases, thinking about who they're directed to, trying to dissect why, why is the difficult person is so difficult, you know, rather than just inclining the mind. The practice is very simple. Actually, what often happens with any of these practices is we turn them into something more complex than they are. In a way, I, might, I could have just said, I mean, let's put it this way, I could have introduced these phrases of just saying, well, just say the phrases, say them very slowly, and just see what happens. That's all. That's the kind of instruction. So it's all about just inclining the mind. Remember this phrase I keep on using, you're probably sick of it by now. You know, but this phrase of inclining your mind, that's all we're doing. Just to keep on inclining our mind. Just as in breath meditation, every time you know, we see our, our minds, our attention wander from the breath to thought processes, well, you look at the thought processes and then what do you do? You bring yourself back. So it's as simple as that. That's all we're doing. Now, the tendency of the mind, of course, is to overcomplicate things. You know, what exactly does it mean in a cognitive sense for somebody to be safe and protected? <laughs> yeah. What would it mean for that person to be peaceful? You know, they're not peaceful at all. <laughs> yeah. And so we start thinking them through. Um, and this is the complication we add into it. And then we start spiralling into, actually, what I spoke about this morning, papancha. Yeah, and that's probably what's going on in this instance. You know, you're starting to get the cognitive processes working again. So just establish a simple relationship, and when you feel that you've established that simple relationship with the breath, with thought again, come back and see if you can actually be in a simple relationship with the phrases again. That's all. Okay. Yeah. Yep. The way in which sometimes these categories seem to be interchangeable. 
difficult. Okay. Okay. It's a question about the um, interchange, the seeming interchangeability between the difficult person and the dear friend. Because sometimes the, the dear friend can be difficult. Yeah? And the difficult person can also, in that sense, be the dear friend. And so there's kind of vacillation between the two, moving backwards and forwards between the two. I think what we have to choose in these instances, it might be just you're choosing the wrong figures um, as you're, you know, the person who you're calling your dear friend and the person who you um, are calling the difficult person. I would see you know, the difficult person at this stage as being somebody a little bit more distant, somebody perhaps you just work with, somebody who you find rather irritating and obtuse in their... I'm sure nobody has anybody like this, of course, at the places they work. Um, but somebody, you know, who you have this problem with. So place it a little bit more distant. But I think you're onto, you're onto something. You know, often, often people who we're close to, we dearly love them, but they can be really difficult as well. Yeah. Now try, uh, in a sense, when you choose your dear friend, choose to somebody where there is less of that. Yeah, less of that. You know. And we have to suspend, of course, again, the cognitive thing of, oh, yes, they're my dear friend, but. <laughs> you know, suspend the but at this stage. You know. um, so it's probably just that you're choosing categories that have, actually have that ambiguity within the, the moment. Just try and you know, choose people who are a little bit separate at this stage. Further along the line in the practice, then actually we can even drop the sense of categories altogether. You know, but at this stage, this is a training practice. We're training ourselves in doing this inclination of the mind. And so this is why we use these particular, you know, particular forms. But you know, just try and keep them a little bit separate at this stage in time. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Give it a rest. Say you've had enough of them, you're bored of them, or you're fed up with them, which I've you know, fed up with saying, is that the time to take a break? Yes. Or is that the time to continue? No, it's the time, time to take a break. <laughs> okay. So okay. Some and, okay. Another question is um, Does it help to, if you can visualize that person, if you have a sense of them being peaceful, if you have a sense of them feeling safe, to, to, to embrace that sense of that? Yeah, you're lay- adding another layer into it then. I don't say that we... I think there's a halfway point between an English and intellectual bunch of words mm. and actually having some tactile intention and meaning to it. Yeah, I, for that place. I, can quite I can quite understand the desire for that, for that sort of connectedness in a way that takes it into a slightly different practice at this stage. At the risk of kind of sounding so completely boring about this, um, it really is about just simply being able to direct the mind in a certain way. Now, at this stage, that's all really, all I'm asking you to do, all the practice is asking you to do, is just direct your mind in that certain way. The, The phrases are... The phrases are to help that sense of directedness of it. You know, so we can play with the phrases, we can use alternative phrases, we can develop phrases of our own. You know, we've had a very short time here. This is not really a length of time to be engaged in all that process. But that's what we can do with it. That's what we can do at this stage. I kind of see that. Yeah. At the same time, if I feel friendly towards someone, it's a sense. It's a body-felt sense of openness towards someone. Yeah. If you're finding that with the words, if you're finding that with the words, concentrate on the body felt sense. Yeah. Now, 
in a way, I think possibly you are slightly more unusual in the sense of being able to do that because a lot of people don't connect immediately the words with a body-felt sense. You know, part of it is actually beginning to direct ourselves to our body understanding. If there is anything, for a lot of people in the early stages, there isn't. The reason why I'm not saying... Let's go back to a few nights ago, or when I introduced the practice, which is actually quite a few days ago. I said at the beginning, actually, it's not about feeling. Remember? Yeah, and I think you know, there's some people who kind of took issue with this. In the sense that at the early stages of this, you might, for a lot of people, in fact most people I've ever been engaged in teaching this to, there often isn't a lot of feeling or any feeling at all. And then they say, well actually the practice is useless, can't do it, don't get any feeling from it, therefore I'll go and move on to something else. Yeah, I'll go back to Vipassana, I'll go back to breath meditation. And I think that's a great pity I think that's a great pity because all that's being asked is the simple thing without reiterating myself of just moving your mind in a certain direction and learning to do that. That's the whole point about it, is learning to do that. Now, if you do have some body-felt sense arising, then it's worth investigating that, being with it. If you do actually have that, if you feel some warmth of the heart if you feel some softening of the body, you know, be with that rather than the words. You know, the words might evoke it for you, but be with the body felt sense. And thank you. And the thing with um, too raw is, is counselling not to have too raw a relationship with a person. Yeah. <laughs> now, is there anything useful in that? I was then working with the dynamic relationship we had, and I was putting the negative into that. Or would you say that it's just reawakening? It's reawakening. It's reawakening. So, it's, it's reawakening. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah I, I, would, I would actually try and move on to somebody else. If, if it actually isn't, um, if it isn't what I call a present thing. You know, if you actually, if calling to mind this person doesn't immediately evoke something of, ooh, they do get me, yeah. <laughs> or there's something about them, yeah. if it doesn't kind of have that feeling, and you're having to dredge it up and think, ooh, why do they really irritate me? Yeah. Oh, it's about, no, no, it isn't that, it's a this. <laughs> no, I'm kind of joking here a little bit, but I think if you're going into that, you're going into your memory. Your memory might not actually be accurate here. So I think it's better to choose a person who there's immediately a kind of mm, don't really don't really like being around them <laughs> for some reason. So there's immediacy. I think you need that immediacy to work with this. Yeah. yeah. Do we ever get to the stage of working with a person who's very difficult and is close to us? Oh yeah, you do. Yeah, I think if, you, if you're doing this practice as a very, very regular practice, then you can start to experiment with dropping people in who are much closer to you, you know, a little less distant. I mean, for a lot of people, this is the first exposure to doing this kind of practice. I don't know if it is with yourself, but for many people, it's the first exposure to doing this, so it's far better to have people at a slight distance from you, you know, not so you know, entangled in our own stuff. Um, because it's a part of training, getting us used to actually doing this. Now, um, if you do the practice on a regular basis, yes. You, you then perhaps can drop in that really difficult person. You know, the person who actually possibly sometimes you don't even want to think about. I would also still, you know, sort of <sighs> warn you of being cautious about doing this. Because if it starts to evoke really, really you know, very painful reactions again, it's probably better to go back to somebody who's not quite so, you know, quite so um, traumatic in your life. Yeah, but you can do this, it's progressive. It's progressive. I mean, actually, coming back to that thought about, you know, dropping in somebody who's really, really difficult and might have caused you real harm in your life, um, it's probably better to work with the teacher in that case you know, um, work with somebody who can guide you through that whole process rather than just doing it on your own. 
But yes, I mean, the whole purpose of it is actually to move these categories into um, people who are a lot closer to us. As, you know, this is the whole purpose of it. But the more general purpose, and perhaps I ought to say this overall, the more general purpose is not just about these categories of people. Now, as I say, this is a training methodology. It's really about working with the category of anybody I find difficult. Working with the category of those people who are close to me, who know I like, you know, not just the particular person I've singled out here. Working with anybody who, you know, who just happens to be on the street and I notice you know, it doesn't mean much to me in my life, if anything, probably nothing at all in my life and being able to have friendlier feelings towards them. So it's much more about moving out into life and having the sense of friendliness as a way that I see the world and I see others within that world. Yeah? So let's not get too hooked on the categories. The categories are training categories because these are the the basic types we encounter in the world, aren't we? We have those who've helped us, we've had those who are close to us, we have those who we feel indifferent to, and we have those we have positive animosity towards, quite often. I mean, going from extreme irritation to downright hatred sometimes. You know, and that sounds a very strong thing to say, but often that's the case here. Now, that might be the case for most of us with all of the people we encounter in our world. Yeah? It might be the case that we, you know, we, we come across these types all the time in our life. There are people who help us, there are people who are very good friends, and there are people who are indifferent, and there are people who actually have done us harm in some way, or certainly irritate us, and we have problematic relationships with them. So the whole purpose of this training is to be able to move out of life, into life, and actually have a friendlier way of seeing the world, a friendlier way of being with people. That might actually lead, for example, in seeing that that harmful person, and again, I'm not really talking about the majorly traumatic category in your life, but it could even extend to that at some point. But you know, that person who is winding you up, perhaps even hurting you, being nasty to you, often is doing it out of a sense of their own as I think I used this phrase the other night, out of their own woundedness, out of their own pain, there is actually very little that's personal in it. Here, yeah. you just happen to be unfortunately the person who's there. You know, when this you know, rage or explosion or nastiness happens to come out, and I think if we if we do that, that becomes if we've seen this person with a degree of friendliness, perhaps it might evoke a sense of compassion for them. Yeah. A sense of being, of being kinder, even if I can't express it at this time, but hold them, holding them in a, a kindlier gaze, you know, a kindlier way of looking at them, a friendlier gaze. And I think this is the real practicality of this, of this um, practice, is that it helps us to see the world in a totally different way. It's, it's more about a way of knowing the world yeah, that we're talking about here. So that's kind of on the back of the question, but yeah. I think you had a. Yeah, okay. that's a very simple one. Yeah. Um, it's about the practice in general. <laughs> I got a wee bit confused on um, in the way we're saying all the phrases and everything. Mm. And you say it's not about feelings, having any feelings, and it's moving your mind in a certain direction. But for each of my categories, nothing is coming up at all. Mm-hmm. Well, you see, that's you see that is almost an assumption that we don't get anything from it. Yeah. In any form of training, you don't automatically get the response that you necessarily want. If you train yourself in, for example, learning a musical instrument, you might not get the sounds out of it that you want. You know, in fact, probably others around you will tell you you're not getting the sounds out of it you want. Um, 
So you're not getting the response that you actually think you're wanting there. Yeah. Yeah. So, but with, with the training, what happens, of course, is that you do then start to make some of the sounds that you want to hear. And perhaps others want to hear as well. <laughs> but, you know, it's a kind of silly analogy, but I think you can see what we're doing here is, is literally training the mind. You know? Well, the movement, the movement of the mind is in actually using the phrases in the sense of directing them at that individual. Okay. That is all. I think, as I, as I said earlier on, what, what often we're looking for is something far more complex. Yeah. And it's actually very simple. You know, mind training is about repeating. Learning a language, doing any kind of training is about repeating. Isn't it? I'm sure any of you who've learned a new language had to repeat the words again, again, and again in order to learn the words. If you want to play a musical instrument, you've got to repeat it again and again and again. If you want to be an athlete, you've got to train. You've got to do the same stuff again and again and again. This is no different from that. You know, it's no different from that. Um, you know, you've got to put in something, you know, as they say, to be skilled in anything, you've got to put in something like 10,000 hours. You know, to have real mastery of that discipline. Um, I don't think we've quite notched up 10,000 hours this week. <laughs> yeah. So we're often looking for things so, too quickly. And it varies. Some people now have kind of got an opposite here because you know, somebody asked a question and said they're feeling bodily things. And you're saying you haven't. That's just different in temperament, that's all. You know, some people will get things immediately, some kind of response. Others won't. Doesn't mean you're not getting it though. Because actually, the real proof of whether it's happening or not is whether you move, find yourself moving into situations which might be situations that normally um, you would avoid and being able to cope with them better because you hold them in a friendlier frame of mind. Yeah? I would say this in general about a lot of meditation practices. Please, please don't think always that the results... I was trying to say to you this with the story about the psychiatrist the other night. Please don't think that all the results come on the cushion. That's a big mistake to make. And people often get very, very disheartened because they don't actually see a lot changing in the cushion. I mean, I've known people, very serious meditators, who've meditated for years, you know, 20, 30 years sometimes, and still sit down and say, look, my mind is actually quite still chaotic. Um, I haven't got all this peace and calm and that that's often spoken about, and some people do reach. Some people get extraordinary states quite quickly. You know, slip into deep states of concentration. I don't think that's the bulk of us. Most of us have to work at it quite hard. But where you often see the fruits of meditation is not on the cushion. I really want to say that. You, know, you don't see it necessarily always on the cushion. What you see of it is your ways of being in the world. If you've ever noticed ways of doing things that have changed and you've been doing meditation for a period of time, it's probably as a result of it. It's probably as a result of that. That the things change and they change subtly. Sometimes we don't notice them. As as with that you know, kind of psychiatrist I told you about, you know, his wife noticed it and he didn't. He she noticed the change. In fact there was another academic I was speaking to in Oxford quite recently who'd taken her husband, and she who she said was completely busy. He was an Oxford professor of English, completely busy, and said his mind was just so fast. You know, um, but now he'd been doing a bit of meditation. She'd really noticed how it slowed down. You know, <coughs> just by doing it, I think he'd only been doing it for about six months, and he really started to slow down quite a lot. Um, so often other people notice it. And it's sometimes good just to check in with perhaps on a regular basis, every you know, few months or so, just see you know, if you can just bring to mind something that's changed in your relationships, in your reactions to certain things. You know, like simple things like, you know, what happens when you know, the bus doesn't arrive on time? Yeah. 
what happens when you're stuck in a traffic jam and you can't get to the meeting that you really wanted to get to or had to get to. You know, these are the little things that are indicative when you don't feel that rising sense of panic and anxiety and things like this when things are not going your way. Yeah. Is, there an, is, there, is there an ability perhaps more to relax into a situation where normally you would have been hypertense about it? These are the ways of checking in. And I think it's exactly the same with metta. Metta practice, you might not see a lot on the cushion, but you might see something outside of it. Yeah. It, yeah, I mean, this, I don't know if everybody heard of this. But this is a question about habit, that it seems not so much just about breaking bad habits, but also forming good habits. And the final comment was that otherwise it'd be kind of, there'd be nothing left if you just broke the bad habits, and there'd be kind of a, a chaos, a resultant. I think it's a staged thing, because what we're doing is, in a sense, what we're replacing is bad habits, exactly what you said. We're replacing bad habits by good habits. But the whole purpose of the path eventually is to overcome all habits. Yeah. If it's a good habit, it's still a track down which your mind is running. It makes you, it makes you even if it's good, less responsive to what is actually there. Because you know, a habit by its very nature is something I always apply in these situations. You know, it's like a, I always do that. So instead of saying I always get angry when that happens, I always go out and I'm terribly kind, which is a much bigger. It's a great improvement. <laughs> Let's face it. I mean, I would. I'm not going to knock that. Um, if you can actually go out into situations where you'd have been seething and actually approach it with friendliness, as a as a much more habitual response to it, but actually situations as we know can change in seconds. And actually, that might not be what is needed. For example, a bit of assertiveness might be needed in that. And it's knowing, and this this is a big word that we use in this. I haven't actually used this word at all this week. And this is a word in Pali, which is called panya, which is actually understanding, deep, incisive understanding. It's usually translated as wisdom, which is a bad translation. But it's... uh, I'm sorry to kind of keep doing this to you. (laughs) Yeah, I, this is a bit of my hobby horse, but never mind. Um, so it's, it's really an incisive understanding. It sees things clearly and knows what to do. Now, you can see how that can't be bound to habit. You know, in a way, it sweeps away habits. And ultimately, that's what we're trying to develop, this incisive understanding. If you like, an eye that really sees things, an ear that really hears things. It's like sometimes, as we know, um, when we hear somebody speak and you hear, and you say to them, you know, how are you? And they go, I'm okay. But you hear behind their voice a tone that says, that's not okay. You know, it goes beneath the surface. You know, it goes beneath the appearance and, and, in a sense, sees what is actually, or hears what is actually going on there, and then makes the appropriate response doesn't operate merely out of habit. And it sounds like pretty wise understanding. It is pretty wise understanding, yes. I'm not sure what you don't like about wisdom. It just doesn't map onto the Pali word at all. Okay. <laughs> That's the first stage of it. Um, and another stage is that I think you know, wisdom, wisdom in the way that we speak about it often in the Western wisdom tradition sounds a bit static. You know, it's often considered to be a body of knowledge, a body of understanding that is applied to certain situations, whereas what we're talking about here is something quite dynamic. And it's worth, you know, part of, you know, let me just say something partly about my reasoning for some of the um, 
some ways I could say some of these things are mistranslations. Because most of the words that we have translated and generally form into some kind of noun uh, are actually verbs in the original languages. And I would actually say Buddhist languages in general, not just Pali and Sanskrit, but most Buddhist languages speak primarily in verbs, not in noun forms. And so therefore we turn something dynamic into something static. Yeah, and I think it's important to understand that we're dealing with a dynamic thing. We often, we're mostly dealing with process of some form. That, and that's the reason why. Yeah. Sorry. Oops. <laughs> Mm. about Western, Western Buddhists or Western meditators not being interested in awakening. It, it sounded to me like awakening with a big capital A. Like very, mm. the, for me, distinction between that and enlightenment with a capital E was, it's like a, both kind of terms that have a sort of transcendent edge. You know? mm. Whereas what you've been talking about, about waking up, small w... Well, let me let me respond to that because I don't. I I personally don't take awakening in that sense at all of being a, a even a transcendent state. It's not a transcendent state. That's quite clear from the early texts. Becomes different in the history of Buddhism. I don't want to speak for other areas of Buddhism where it is quite different. But in the early texts, how would I probably say what awakening is? Awakening is a skill that one has. It's not a state. It's the ability to wake yourself up in situations where you're normally bound to habitual tendencies and ways of doing things. So it's much more a skill-based idea than it ever is as this kind of big thing that I'm going to attain. Now, when we hear it, you know, the word obviously we're translating here is nirvana. You know, again, it's a verb form. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it is incremental nirvanaing, you know, and the person who gets really, really accomplished at it is somebody who's woken up. Yeah. They've woken up to the fact that they can do this again and again and again and again. You know, so it, it's, you know, in many ways, I often even see the early texts as not, you know, they're not dogmas or anything else. They're kind of skills training manuals. Um, that's what they're trying to get us to do, to train in certain skills. Just like you know, training in meta is learning a skill of being able to do something, which, and it doesn't come easy. You know, like nothing. I mean, everything has effort required um, to get it, and the hours being put in. Um, and awakening isn't this static thing. You know, unfortunately, it's a problem with the English language. Okay. A lot of, you know, I like to hyphenate them generally. It's awakening. <laughs> you know, and there's your verb. <laughs> Yeah, and there's some there's some good ones. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's probably the most prolific translator, has done a wonderful job in retranslating a fairly large portion of the early corpus. And there is uh, Morris Walsh who translated the Long Discourses of the Buddha. But Bhikkhu Bodhi is the most prolific. Now, these translations are ones that are for the moment. I think they would need reworking. They're very good, um, but they still read like the Pali texts. They don't read like contemporary English by any means. Um, Sometimes they appear to be more difficult than they are simply because the translator, Bhikkhu Bodhi in this case, follows the syntax of the original language too closely. And so it looks convoluted in English, where it actually isn't. 
um, what is being said. So you have to bear in mind, but you know it's a fantastic job. This is you talking about a huge, you know, huge amount of translation work you know, to work through this material. Um, but those are the ones I would recommend. You could his translations. Time for one. Well, two more questions, then we'll finish. Yeah, yeah you first. Well, the meta I'm teaching is a very specific way of doing it. It's deliberately devised for the creation of insight. And this is part of it. I mean, I haven't spoken so much about it this evening, but this is what's being engaged. It's not so much at this stage about feeling, but, you know, if you've been taught it in a different way and it works for you, and this is, I think, is always, if you like, the, the proof of the pudding, is does it work? What happens? You know, in your contrasting it with this style of teaching it, what do you find most beneficial in getting you to orient your mind, heart, body in this direction of metta? You know, there are different ways of teaching it. You know, so I don't recommend, if you found a way of doing it which works for you, of dropping it. It's not as if they're in competition. They're just different ways of approaching the same thing. Actually, my question was more specific. I should have been clearer. Uh, uh, if, you, uh, if I'm doing your style of method, yeah. which is in here, yeah. uh, can it be valuable to connect to the heart, breathe through the heart, should I drop that? I would drop that because this style of method doesn't really, doesn't really have to have that as part of its training process. Yeah, but if there is, as I say, another style that you've been used to, then use it. But for this style, you don't need that. Actually, now, I think that comes naturally with practice. In fact, I know it comes naturally with practice in doing this. But that takes time. Yeah. Just yeah. yeah. Yes, uh, you you talked this morning about that and um, and what came out this morning and it came earlier um, before as well is is more like um, perpetual around um, um, you know, planning or you know trying to work out what I should be doing and so mm-hmm. on and which dates and so on. And, and and I don't know exactly where that would fit in, in yeah. That's- Okay, this was a question I don't know if everybody heard. It's a question about Papancha. It says, you know, when I was talking about Papancha this morning, obviously I gave categories of different forms of Papancha, you know, self, views, and, of course, craving. And the question is, there's a lot of Papancha around planning and doing things like planning. Um, where does it sit? Well, it sits around the Papancha around self. You know, this is where it is. You know, it's self what am I going to be doing? How can I do that? How can I do this? It's me. It's in there. It's papancha around self. Can be a papancha around craving, getting something, you know, planning to get something, for example. And, and about self, how, how does it, um, like becoming or, or like... Um... It can be becoming, yeah. It's often, often very much about becoming what I want to become, where I want to become, where I want to be. Yes, these are all issues which surround the notion of self. Yeah. So I think the, it's, a, it's a big one for most of us, isn't it? Planning. Um, but not all planning has to be papancha. That's, you know, that's really worth thinking about. You know, if I mindfully plan, if I actually make space, and this is my planning time, and I actually devote myself to planning, just like I would devote myself mindfully perhaps to doing a mundane task like washing up or cleaning the house or whatever it is, then I don't have to puncture around it. <laughs> you know, this is the ideal world, but this is in a sense what we're aiming at, mindfully knowing that I want to plan at this moment in time. Not sitting there reading a book and suddenly thinking, well, oh, I ought to book that ticket for the you know, such and such, and, you know, and the mind goes off when it's doing another task, such as reading or listening to something or engaging in the washing up and you're thinking about what you're going to be planning for tea. Yeah. These, are, these are all elements of planning. 
But I think if we actually spend time just mindfully planning, what's wrong with planning? Yeah, we have to do it. You ought to all had to do it to get here. <laughs> yeah. And some of you from quite long distances to get here. You know, so planning is a good thing. Thinking about things is a good thing. Nobody is saying that we abandon the rational mind. <laughs> you know, it's not as if we kind of there's a box outside where you leave your brain when you come in the door. <laughs> yeah, it's not like that. That's not what the meditative life is like it's it's to in a sense know what you're doing when you're doing it and be full fully there for it at that moment and i think planning is like that and there can be as well some kind of expression as well of some kind of desires or, or which can be awesome, you know, some desires as well yeah and, but it's just the, the idea of being obsessive which is an issue it's the obsession it's the obsession. I mean, some people really do have planning as an obsession. It takes over their lives. It's what they, they kind of... It's almost like their raison d'etre. It's their reason for being. Uh, my being is planning. That's what I do. <laughs> now, it sounds very silly, but that's, way, that's what the obsessional nature is. It gets, trapped into those, it gets trapped into those states, and then the mind just goes round and round and round that, that stuff. What we're trying to do is release ourselves from that and know what we're doing and do it because it's important but not be doing it all the time. Yeah, That's the problem. It's like thinking is wonderful. The rational mind, problem solving is incredible. Just look at the power of the human brain and what it's done and the rational mind and what it can create. Yet we don't want to be doing it all the time. Yeah, Do it when you need to do it. You know, it's like we're always problem solving. Have you noticed that as well? And this is very interesting. I mean, in the way this gets into areas of some of the mindfulness approaches, but you know, problem solving is fantastic. It's one of the real abilities of the human mind to be able to problem solve. The problem is we can't problem solve when it comes to emotional issues. You know, think of this one. I'm unhappy now. I want to plot my way to happiness. <laughs> I'm going to think my way into the position where I can get happy. It doesn't happen. What happens is the unhappiness and thinking about the unhappiness and wanting to be happy makes you more unhappy <laughs> rather than bringing about happiness. You know, so actually, it's, it's a, if you like, it's an area where the, the rational mind doesn't have a purchase like it does in planning, for example. And that's another very good example. The rational mind is very good at planning. It says, you know, I'm here, whatever country you might be in or whatever you know, town you might be in, and says, I want to be there. Okay, I'll look at the timetables, I'll look at the map, I'll plot the route, and I'll find a way of getting from A to B, whatever it is. We can't do that with emotional issues. Yeah, that's the real problem. The, the rational mind immediately thinks it can solve that problem. And it just makes the, you know, the problem often bigger when it comes to emotional issues themselves. Okay, I think we should finish there. And thank you again for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate